0: Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged on Boxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged.
1: Hi everybody and welcome to the show. We're happy you joined us. Uh, This is a show where we every week get to uh, interview uh, one of the biggest names in the sport of boxing. And on this particular show, we're going to deal with a very difficult but important subject. It's about a book that Tris Dixon uh, wrote, and Tris will be joining us to talk about his book, Damage, the Untold Story of Brain Trauma in Boxing, uh, put out by Hamilcar Publications. It's um, a really fine book, a uh, very difficult undertaking for Tris, and he did an excellent job in writing it. And we're going to talk about that. It's an important book that uh, needs needed to be written, and I believe needs to be read by as many people as uh, possible. Now, uh, to help me with the show as my co-host and help us with also the questions that you send in uh, on Twitter at Al Bernstein, my good friend Trip Mitchell. Hi, Trip. How are you?
0: I am great, Al, and I had a chance to watch uh, from the memorial service back in Brockton for marvelous Marvin Hagler, and you did a great job. You Thank followed you. Stephen Smith, and uh, uh, the two of you guys together was uh, very proud. Great job!
1: Yeah, it was fun. Uh, it, uh, you know uh, if you can call that fun, but uh, but it was in a way because it was a celebration of his life. It was held on the day that would have been Marvin's sixty seventh birthday. Um, and, uh, you know, you mentioned Stephen A. Smith was there. He's uh, obviously a, a boxing fan and a fan of Marvin Hagler's and Bernard Hopkins, who took the torch uh, that was passed on in a way from the middleweight division for Marvin Hagler uh, and became himself an icon in that division and a number of other boxing folks there. And, um uh, Tommy Hearns made a, a surprise appearance. Uh, people did not expect him to to get there, and he did, and that was wonderful. And they had a video segment in which Ray Leonard and many other uh, boxing folks gave their uh, condolences to the uh, Hagler family and talked about Marvin. And it was a wonderful event. You know, I, I think it was it was something that uh, May Lang uh, uh, Marvin's mother really appreciated, and it was. Um, you know i'm glad i went to it and i'm glad i was able to to uh, officially kind of say goodbye uh, to marvin
0: well that was fantastic and uh those of your fans and fans of boxing can watch that and uh again great job Well let's get right to the questions and let's start with a question about uh, lightweights well, one-time lightweights that is rob ovett asks fighting his as lightweights in their prime who would win between duran and Mayweather. Ah, interesting. Those are always, of course, the hot stove kind of questions that uh, boxing fans
1: debate in uh, bars all across the world. <laughs> and uh, uh, and when you you take them generationally, it's uh, it's a question you can never answer for sure. But everybody has an opinion. This one's interesting because they they our questioner designated the lightweight division where uh, Duran and Mayweather fought at many different divisions, and uh, at lightweight, you know. Roberto Duran had a longer run as a lightweight, much longer than, uh, than Mayweather did. He won the title in 72 for 1972 from Ken Buchanan and kept it for, I think, seven years. Uh, and Mayweather on the other hand, won his title from Jose Luis Castillo and kept it for, I think two and a half years or three years, uh, in the early two thousands. And, uh, It's important that I mention Jose Luis Castillo because that is bearing on my my answer here. Mayweather won the title in a hotly disputed and controversial decision against Castillo. Many people thought that Mayweather lost that fight. He would fight Castillo in a rematch, win that one by a little more. And that one, I think most people think he did win, though again, it was a very close fight. And that... Kind of guides me in my thinking uh, about what might happen if Duran and Mayweather fought, uh, because Mayweather had so much problems dealing with so many problems dealing with uh, Castillo. Roberto Duran fought a very similar kind of swarming style, uh, but Roberto Duran, to be honest, is certainly a was certainly a better lightweight than Jose Luis Castillo. Though Castillo was terrific. Uh, and so given that kind of information to work with, I kind of have to lean toward Roberto Duran in this fight. You know, it's never, it's almost impossible to say for sure. And this is in no way denigrating Floyd, who, uh, of course, one of the great fighters and was very good at lightweight. Um, so, but I think if, if, if I had to make a pick, it would probably be Duran.
0: Okay, good information. And uh, our next question from Wreck-It Walk. With recent news of two big bouts in the last week, which do you see actually happening and which has the potential biggest impact on Wilder Fury or Pacquiao Spence?
1: Oh, which one has the biggest impact on the sport? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I I think uh, oh, they're both going to happen and they're both going to happen in Las Vegas uh, and they will both have a big impact on the sport. Uh you know wilder fury an even bigger impact because it there's more future things that are probably at play because of it you know whoever wins has anthony joshua waiting in the wings fury was already signed to fight him uh until he lost the arbitration and and now has to do his third fight with uh with wilder and so um you know It's going to have a big impact on how the heavyweight division moves forward. Now, the Spence-Pacquiao fight, which is very interesting, uh, well, that could too have importance, uh, certainly, because if Pacquiao pulled off an upset, that would certainly upset the apple cart in the welterweight division. Uh, Pacquiao will be the underdog in that fight. Kudos to him for taking it at age 42. For him to go uh, take on Errol Spence, one of the certainly one of the two best welterweights in the world, uh, along with Terence Crawford. Uh, though Sean Porter, who fought uh, uh, Spence to a standstill, would argue he should be in that conversation and probably should. But the fact is that uh, I think that if Spence wins then the welterweight division stays kind of where it is. So that might have a little less impact overall if Spence wins. But if Pacquiao wins, that would have a huge impact uh, on the sport of boxing because it would affect what is uh, arguably the premier division in boxing, the welterweight division. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that we're going to be chatting with uh, a gentleman who is a terrific writer. Tris Dixon is his name. He uh, was a former editor of Boxing News. He's been covering boxing since 1996, and he has written three previous boxing books, including one on Floyd Mayweather, interestingly. Uh, But he has now uh, now has a book that's just coming out uh, that probably is the most important thing he's done as a writer in boxing. The book is called Damage, and it's the untold story of brain trauma in boxing. And it's a very comprehensive look at the history of, of that problem in boxing, the study of it, the impact it's had uh, on fighters and families of fighters, and um, and also what can be done to help try and mitigate the issue. Boxing is a difficult sport, and this topic is a tough one to discuss. It's one of those things that... We understand it's part of the sport, but uh, finding a way to deal with it and make it better, especially for the fighters that are uh, victims of it, um, is a really important topic. And, uh, you know, this book has many poignant moments in it, uh, but it's not just a woe-is-me tale about either the fighters, or, and it's not a a negative view of the sport because of this issue. Uh, It is more an honest look at it so that everyone can assess it as, a, as an issue and think about how to move forward with it. So with that having been said, uh, here's the man that wrote the book Damage, uh, Tris Dixon. Tris, thanks for uh, uh, doing the show and talking to us about your new book, which is an important one for the sport of boxing and for boxing fans and uh, extraordinary, extraordinarily well-written. And uh, has information in it that I think, though some of it is difficult for us to absorb, needs to be uh, talked about. Um, Why did you decide to do this specific kind of book? What was it that ultimately motivated you to write a book, you know, about this uh, difficult topic? Um,
2: General, it's partly... uh for the exact reason that you mentioned there Al, is that I want people to be able to talk about it so that it's no longer a hard conversation to have. I want it to be a part of the conversation for boxing and for fight fans and I want people to not just understand the risks uh, about the long-term consequences of boxing but but to be able to change stigmas about what happens to fighters. Obviously I've I've been close to, several, to to many fighters over the years. When I think back to Matthew Saad Muhammad and Aaron Pryor, these were these were good friends of mine, and it was sad to see what happened to these guys. And I want more for old and retired or ex retired fighters than, than those guys had in their lives. And I want them to have a better future. And I want them to have uh, a world of understanding where they're not mocked, taunted, or or anything for being in inverted commas here, punchy. You know, I don't think the NFL struggles here with CTE and I don't think there's a negative stigma attached to football players who struggle in in life after football. But for some reason, boxing, you know, these guys have been mocked for generations and it's time to stop that because these are warriors who deserve so much more. They've given us everything and they deserve a damn sight more respect than they've been given over the years.
1: That's well put. You know, I debated when we were going to do the interview <clears throat> whether I was going to use this statement that's in the book at the beginning of the interview or save it to the end. And I decided to use it at the beginning so that people would understand even better uh, how you view this, because this book has a lot of material in it that is, you know, doesn't speak to the Best side of boxing in terms of its the impact it has on human beings. How sometimes people are not are insensitive as you point out to it. How sometimes the business of boxing doesn't lend itself correctly to servicing the boxers. And yet, uh, I want to say this a very very interesting statement you made toward the end of the book early in our interview, so people understand your viewpoint. You had a great line toward the end of the book that said, boxing has saved more souls than it has taken. And I thought that was a a brilliantly, you know, as you were kind of doing a summation to explain, look, uh, I'm not talking about the abolition of boxing. I'm not talking about, you know, denigrating the sport uh, as a sport. But what you wrote there is so true because, you know, from youngsters that walk in, I do a lot of work with amateur boxing in the United States, uh, and and you've seen it on your side of the pond and everywhere else. Uh, The people that boxing has helped are a legion of people
2: yeah of course and you know i'm a boxing guy so i mean i'm i'm you know i'm, I'm not part of the uh, anti-boxing brigade or the band boxing brigade you know that's that's not where i'm going with this at all and if and if anyone draws that as a conclusion they've, they've gone the wrong way with it entirely right. i obviously want to help the sport and and it, and f- f- one of the reasons is is for what you say there you know the sport does do so much for communities for individuals Hey, I, could, I could point to my own life. My life was going down uh, a different direction when I was 18, 19, 20. But through boxing and having boxing and being part of a boxing club and being part of a community, it kept me on the straight and narrow. And it made me disciplined and it instilled, it instilled things in, that are still with me today. I still train. I still have routines. I still have discipline. Um, you know, I'm careful with my diet. And all of that came from boxing for me. For me. And then I think of my, my own coach. And I'm talking at a very low level here. My, my own local co- coach, a guy who was a, a very bad dude back in the day, basically looked like he was going to be a career criminal. And then he's wound up being a, a wise old sage to boxing, to, to young to young urchins for, for generations. So boxing has done so much. And obviously I, th- I then think about the people I've trained and fought with and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And then obviously you look at the bigger picture and the hope it gives so many people and and you'll know it's it's such a well-worn cliche but it is a way out for a lot of people the thing is it's just about you know in terms of the book now it's about arming these guys and equipping them with enough knowledge to think hang on when your career is done at 30 35 or 40 however however old you are there is a life after boxing you need to be prepared for it because it's going to come up and 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 try and kick your ass
1: yeah yeah true now in the book, you uh, you do a great job of – I've never anything as comprehensive in terms of you going back and describing the various kinds of uh, – uh, uh, you know studies that have been done on boxers and the work that's been done on this. And you you go all the way back to uh, Dr. Harrison Martland uh, and uh, also Harry L. Parker, who was another person that continued his work. And very early in the early 1900s, they were doing work on trying to understand uh, the dangers of boxing. And they were kind of the forerunners, weren't they, of all the, the studies that we've seen done on this?
2: Yeah, and it's it's crazy to think because this is really where it came about for me. I was reading a book called The League of Denial, which is about the NFL's concussion crisis, which came out a few years ago. And I was reading about CTE and it wasn't linked. I wasn't reading it with a, a link to boxing in mind. I was just reading about CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is what these guys struggle with in retirement. And then through the book, obviously, basically told me that CTE was actually a more modernised term of what what Harrison Martin called punch drunk syndrome, and basically Martin's study, he was a promoter, brought him. In the region of 20 fighters, and said, look, something's not quite right with these fighters. And they had various symptoms, you know, whether it was um, cognitive symptoms or behavioral symptoms. You know, these guys had changed over time and some of them might have slurred speech. Some of them might be walking unsteadily. Some of them might have become hugely depressed. uh, Some of them might have become very impulsive and had mood swings. Anyway, he had these 20 odd guys that he brought to Harrison Martland, whoever this promoter was. And, and he said to Martland, you know, what do you make of these guys? And the thing was, because there was so little medical literature or no no medical literature about it at the time, Martland actually was was very good. And he said, well, hang on, you're the boxing people. You tell me, you know, what's happened? And and so the, the early scientists who were talking about this actually gave a lot of credence to what they called as lay people, so boxing people, who had witnessed the, the change, the decline in fighters. Uh, obviously now times evolved and obviously I think, you know, that there's plenty of neurologists out there that have worked with Xboxes and so forth that are more clued up. But Martin was a real pioneer and, uh, and his work is still referred to regularly in this day and age, which is incredible because the paper was 1928. So we're nearly a hundred years on from it. And he was, yeah, he was the first guy.
1: That's pretty amazing that it's still as pertinent. One of the fighters from that era who um, was, concerned about himself, uh, and he was a very well-educated and insightful man was Gene Tunney, who, of course, ended up winning the heavyweight championship, former Marine, and uh, he worried, didn't he? Uh, and, of course, he did retire pretty early. He worried about what effects boxing might have on him.
2: Yeah, he did. There was a line when he retired, you know, he he felt something happen to him in a sparring session. He's like, hmm, this is a warning. This is a red flag. And so, you know, he was one of the one of the very chosen few who went out on his terms and went out on top. Uh, and, and you know, it proved to be a shrewd move. But then he he struggled down the line as well. So sometimes when you think these guys have got out and I'm not saying cognitively, but he had his battles with drink and, and other things that you know with with hindsight what we now know in terms of you know CTE and how it can lead to addictions and other issues like that then you know maybe he did because he sustained I think it was against Harry Greb where he sustained a real beating and obviously he would stuck around a long time and boxed at, at all levels Gene Tunney and and through the weights so it's um he was very aware of it, though. And I think he, he even wrote about it in his autobiography. Like, that was one of the reasons why he got out when he did, thinking, you know, hang on, I think this is enough.
1: Yeah, yeah he was insightful enough to know. One of the things you write about is a gentleman, uh, John Arthur Corsellis who ex- studied actual brains of boxers after they – he collected brains of a, many different kinds for studies – And that included the brains of boxers after they'd passed away. And uh, he did physical studies of what their brains looked like uh, and had some interesting, uh, you know, insights on that level.
2: Yeah, there are still people that think Corsellus' work is the go-to work, even now, sort of 50, 60 years on. Uh, I tend to disagree because, you know, scientific studies have moved on so much more. But what he did that was so crucial was he would look at a brain and in his in his uh, assessment of a brain he would then marry up with his team of researchers what behavioral changes the, the you know whoever owned the brain he would he would then try and say well what part of the brain is damaged and what's actually happening to the mm-hmm. say, to the fighter so he'd think oh look if that part's damaged there then maybe that's affecting how they walk if that bit's damaged there then maybe that's the bit that affects the memory and so his neuropathology was pioneering in the sense that he Actually, start to put the pieces together about what damage was being done and how it was affecting these guys.
1: So, that was, that was, it strike me that might have been a pretty important f- in terms of the study of this.
2: Hugely important. You know, and like, and like I said, people still say, you know, they, they sort of discredit some of the more modern neuroscience and go back to Corsellus and say, well, no, this is the, this is yeah, the map.
1: Interesting. Hmm. One of the fighters, uh, of course, the most famous perhaps the most famous fighter of all time, Muhammad Ali, um, is an interesting uh, part of this discussion because um, clearly we saw his deterioration uh, after his boxing career, getting Parkinson's disease. But one of the things that that is up for debate, or at least has been debated, is whether because there was Parkinson's in, uh, in the, the family uh, prior to that, how much was brought on by boxing what impact boxing specifically had and there people have different motivations for for saying yes or no to that question so ali becomes and you devote a lot of time in the book to discussing uh, ali's situation it's one of the 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 interesting parts of this that people have a hard time wrapping their brains around
2: Yeah, of course. And I think, you know, there's multiple reasons for this. And I think, you know, you can go back to Markland's paper and some of the earlier studies where these scientists were saying, oh, you know, it's not going to happen to the good fighters. It's going to happen to the journeymen or to the sparring partners or to the guys that sit in whatever colour they used to use before the blue corner. (laughs) But, you know, in the black and white days. Um, So it, it was, you know, basically you were going to be in trouble if you weren't very good. And I think this is where the stigmas come from as well, where, you know, if you wind up and, you, and you're and you suffering in life after boxing, people say, oh, you can't have been very good. And obviously we know how vain Ali was, the terrific Ali, and how he prided himself in, obviously, for a long period of time, being the guy that you couldn't hit. Um, and, and, you know, Ali, is, you know, just going back to the research as well, obviously Thomas Hauser, who wrote the brilliant book on, on Ali, right. he was privy to a lot of the confidential medical papers, uh, while writing Ali's book with him. And, you know, to, it seems, you know, that he was very much told and given the impression that Ali's damage was down to boxing. And it was the Ali family that chose to go the Parkinson's route. And obviously now, it's hard to tell, obviously, what damage that would have would have been if it, or how different things could have been if Ali had said, you know, this is down to boxing, you know, we need to do something about this. But obviously, they've gone a completely different route. And so... You know we don't know what difference it, it could have made but obviously, obviously as you can tell from the book there are voices out there saying that they wish that he'd champion the cause of ex-fighters who struggled because his name would have been to, you know would have would have got so much momentum and so much publicity towards change and helping helping ex-fighters.
1: And they would they would say, of course, he did do a lot of work on as far as Parkinson's is concerned, and that was kind of the direction that they, they took it in. And many people talked about how the, in the latter portions of career, his career, when he was employing the rope dope and took even so many more punches, that, that might have been part of the time, though, from a boxing standpoint that really did a lot of excess damage to him. And some of the people that you talked to suggest that was like the the final piece of the puzzle that caused all this problem.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think we'll, we'll never know definitively, will we? But I think, you know, when you hear about those horror sparring stories in deer Lake, you know, when he was going, uh, having it all out with Larry Holmes and, you know, actual, you know, guys who were going to win the heavyweight title, I think dokes and weaver or or guys of that ilk, young hungry studs that were coming through Tim Witherspoon and stuff, Uh, you know, and he was an old man, the guy who was, who was, um, dyeing his hair to make him look younger, and and doing all the, all the tricks of the trade he could to try and cling on to his youth, which which had come and gone. Uh, but you know, I think I you know I quoted the book that, that CompuBox brought out, Ali by by the numbers, and they've done the punch stats of those last fights, which people refer to. So the Ernie Shavers fight, uh, the both both fights with uh, Leon Spinks, uh, and then Larry Holmes and Trevor Burbick, and you know there's several. Several thousand more punches and several long, arduous training camps to add on top of the damage that he'd already acquired over 20 or 30 years of taking punches to the head.
1: In your book, you talk about uh, with a number of people, uh, including one of my former uh, broadcasting mates, Pauli Malinaji, and others, about the idea of sparring. You know, it, this is the conundrum with boxing, right? Boxers need to spar. Um, and it's a necessity to get better. And yet the volume of the sparring, oftentimes, many people have suggested, is as much a cause of, of these issues that boxers have as the actual fights they were in. And Freddie Roach, the Hall of Fame trainer, who has himself suffered issues post-boxing, uh, even cut down some of the sparring uh, that some of his fighters have done. This is a thorny issue, though, isn't it, in terms of safety?
2: Yeah, and uh, listen, I don't know if you guys use the word woke over in the U.S. I don't want to come across as a, a woke individual. That's you yeah. know trying to some sort of hipster, sort of left-wing hipster trying to you know oh you know wear cushions for gloves and wear motorcycle helmets and stuff. I'm not like that. You know, I I think that you know Mickey Ward says you know 90% of his damages is, is, was done in sparring, and he would have sparred less had he known. What he knows now, so you know using the power of experience and someone's own admission, I think that's quite a powerful statement. And you know you can you can implement change and you can see things from a different perspective once you understand what's going on. For example, you know you'll know Dominic ingall in the Sheffield gym here. A vast amount of the sparring they do in that gym is body sparring, and I must say, you know, I've seen sparring all over the world. Some of the most savage sessions I've seen. Has been their their body sparring, where they go all out to the to the body, and I think you know. I think you know. I was, I'm working on a book now about Matthew Saad Muhammad, and I'm looking at you know, at the end of his career, he was still sparring 150 rounds mm. for a fight. Wow! And, you know, and, and this is when he, you know, this is when the horse was already out of the barn for Matthew as well. Like his career had come and gone, and he was he was starting to struggle a little bit. And I just think you know, the com the People should be aware of how many rounds they're putting in the bank and, uh, and and the type of rounds they're putting in the bank. And they need to be aware. And, and I think there, there possibly does need to be a change in the culture. You know, I, I mentioned in the book, when I trained with Kevin Rooney up in Catskill, I'm sure I sustained a concussion one day. And I went back to the gym the next day and Kevin says, oh, you know, I want four rounds out of you. That's absolutely fine because I'm a boxer. That's why, you know, I was a boxer. I was there to impress Kevin. I'm not going to say oh, sorry, boss, I've got a sore head from yesterday because then I look like a wimp. But that's the sort of culture where you need to be able to put your hand up and say, sorry, boss, you know, yesterday you got me with a great shot and, you know, I'm not feeling it today. And, you know, it's not being a wimp. You know, there's there's real dangers out there. And that, in, and that doesn't and stuff.
1: Yeah. And, you know, that doesn't that very seldom happens in boxing gyms where you can put your hand up and do that. I don't even know if it happens now. I remember a million years ago being in, a, a, you know, an amateur boxer. And and uh, you'd never think of, as you pointed out, you'd never think of saying that to somebody that wants you to spar an extra three or four rounds. Just it's just unlikely to happen.
2: No, but then, you know, we've had we had a bad example with I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Nick Blackwell story where he got buzzed in sparring a few days before he fought Chris Eubank Jr. Yeah. And he, he got he either got dropped or certainly hurt by George Groves. And he said, uh, you know, whatever it was, he, he still fought Chris Eubank a few days later. And then obviously after the Chris Eubank fight, he was in a coma. And you know, was it that he went in with the damage? And you, you'll you'll understand this as well. I mean, I remember sitting down with Don Former in Don Former's house, and he was telling me about the beating that Gene Former put on Benny Kipperet. And if you look at the timeline, that fight, that war that Gene had with with Benny Perrett came very very soon before Benny Perrett fought Emil Griffith. And Don actually thought that was the smoking gun—that was the, that did the main damage for Benny Parete. The fact that he hadn't recovered from the fight with former, which I think was just a matter of, of weeks beforehand. And so I think there's this thing with where, you know, and, and we see it in football where where people are becoming more understanding about yeah. it. It's going to be a process. It's not going to be happen overnight. But people are going to have to think not just for uh, the long term health, but if if someone wants to perform in a fight, they can't go in with a concussion. They can't go in with you know with with what is literally a brain injury and and you know the chances of, of something bad happen go up exponentially if you actually do that so it's just not worth taking the risk
1: and do you see in the sport of boxing sub evolution of the thinking uh we we've seen certain things we see feeders uh fighters fighting less we see people thinking about how much they should spar do you see some evolution in how people are approaching things you're because you you talk to so many people about this book uh before this book uh do you see a, a change in thinking well i mean the only thing i can say to that Al, is let's see who cares
2: who cares about these fighters afterwards if they care then things need to change because the scrap heap of old fighters is too big. It's too great. The number of the damaged guys that don't get the care, the love, and the attention they deserve afterwards is too big. So let's—we have the responsibility to end the cycle. It's down to those people who say they care about the fighters to actually start implementing these sort of things that will look after them down the line. So I'd like to think so. I'd like to think you see, or you're on social media. Oh, this guy is wonderful, or you know, this, that, and the other. The problem is, you know, boxing's so so fast-paced, and you'll know, obviously, all about this from social media and everything that's going on all the time. Yeah, It's a sense that, you know, you get a damaged fighter, and, you know, there's a GoFundMe page, and it's set up, and everyone's like, oh, brilliant, let's help him out. Two days later, everyone's back to talking about Fury Joshua again, and, you know, someone, someone else is thrown off the back of the treadmill and forgotten about.
1: It is staggering to me that uh, people are so quick to criticize boxers, who either retire from a fight because they feel they've been injured uh, or have a clear injury and people find it difficult to believe that they would have retired from a fight and realize that they shouldn't go on. Um, you know, I, I I I understand it's a warrior sport and we've all been involved in it many years and like, you, you know, many of us have been in the ring and uh, approached the sport from that standpoint, but Uh, still, it it surprises me.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's astonishing. And we've had it, you know, the two most notable ones that spring to mind are obviously Daniel Dubois against Joe Joyce. uh, And then Billy Joe Saunders against Canelo recently, where, you know, I think it wouldn't surprise me if the word quit is actually trending on Twitter on these nights. because Everyone says these guys are quitting. And, you know, like obviously the book is about long term brain injuries. So not what happens on fight night, but obviously what happens on fight night can have a big impact on what happens to these guys down the line. And, you know, particularly in the case, I mean, I can't say particularly in the case of of Dubois, but in in both cases really, you know, the guys are basically half blind. And in Dubois it was his lead eye and he wasn't getting out out of the way of those right hands. So, you know, and Joyce is obviously a big puncher. So what's to gain by going out on your shield you know why don't you just chalk it up and chalk it off and say look lost to the better man i'll come back i don't need to take another six minutes of this because i can't right. see what's hitting me i can't get out of the way of it you know it's not you know whether i go 12 rounds or 10 rounds i'm still lost but obviously yeah. we have this stigma where people want you to go out in your shield and it's because you know we're so lucky with the sport that we cover and i love it so much when we see these guys like ward and gatty and corrales and castillo and you know, going back we see the, the, the greats like Rocky Marciano and these guys are warriors that fought for, you know, Marciano with his nose hanging off and Danny Williams with his shoulder hanging out of his socket. And we've seen these guys with exceptional cover- uh, courage that that's become the norm. And people right. like, that's, that's, exceptional. that's exceptional. That's exceptional. That's above and beyond. You don't need to give us that. You don't need to give us your life, your livelihood or your future. You know, we're here for the sport. You know, what are the sport... Would say you know say in football over there if someone gets uh, you know a serious injury and they come off and want to be substituted. I oh, so you quit. I haven't I haven't heard that in football or anything else. It's it's yeah. strange why you know people want their boxers to be absolute alpha males, you know absolute men's men and and I guess now they want they want the women to be as tough as as possible as well, and it's just you know that we don't require that we we don't require these guys to put their lives on the line. We shouldn't. We shouldn't make that the standard
1: yeah very good point um you talked to a lot of people uh, for this book relatives of boxers who have suffered brain damage and who have you know, had difficult moments after uh, they were done with the sport a lot of friends those had to be very uh, hard conversations and the way you write about them in the book uh, they're very poignant and heartfelt that had to be a difficult process even to just go through doing all those interviews
2: yeah by far the toughest part um, you know I, I can almost I can almost it almost triggers a bit of emotion within me now knowing how brave those those women are you know and you're referring to Frankie Pryor Aaron's widow and and Brenda Spinks who's now obviously Leon's widow and the fact that they shared so much with me and obviously Aaron, Aaron I knew well like I've been to Aaron and Frankie's home and sat on Aaron's couch and watched Uh, Prior Cervantes with him and I watched Prior Arguea the legendary night show with with Aaron and so I've known them for years and then when when Aaron uh, died um, Frankie and I stayed in touch so to speak when I when I phoned Frankie and said I was doing the book it was really a catch-up it wasn't really for the book and then she was so good about it and so open talking about Aaron and how he was diagnosed with dementia but obviously it was CTE and really, her, Rose Norton, Ken's widow, and Brenda Spinks, and Kay Hagler now as well, like they've they formed this first wives club of, of CTE and boxing. And they've been extraordinary, extraordinarily strong. And to, to spend the day or the morning with Brenda and Leon uh, a couple of years ago, it, I wanted to spend the time with Leon because I knew he was such a high profile, severe CTE sufferer. And to see how Brenda looked after him. Uh, it was just awe-inspiring. And I know Frankie had had the same stuff with, with Aaron, but um, to, 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 to know the ins and outs of hospital visits and medication and, you know, changing the landscape of how their house looked, the dynamic and sort of move, making it wheelchair accessible and everything else that they did, they were there for their men. They were there. By the end of the book, they were the heroes to me, more than the fighters. And I say that with all due respect to the boxers, but those women... Gave of serious chunks of their life to to make Aaron and Leon's lives better.
1: Remarkable that uh, these, both them and other people were, you know, would have those conversations with you um, uh, for this book. And uh, hats off to them and others that talk to you that know the sport uh, to help you illuminate people about this uh, problem.
2: Yeah, I suppose that was one of the things, Out intermittently through this process. Uh, I remember speaking to Bobby Quarry, who's the surviving Quarry sibling. And I spoke to Dr. Robert Cantor, who's one of the leading doctors in, in Boston. Uh, and uh, there were numerous other people, including Frankie Pryor. And they almost said the exact same quote. They said, you know, this is a great thing that you're doing. And that really sort of bolstered me through the, you know, through some low moments and, you know, the, the book's been four years in the making. So obviously it's a roller coaster in its own right of highs and lows and things that go on in my own life and, and all the rest of it during those, during those periods. But for the fact that those people would say, you know, what you're doing isn't just helping the sport, but it's helping families and people like us. Uh, and for the neurosurgeons and neuroscientists to say, you know, what you're doing is good because this stuff, people need to be aware of it. Um, that really boosted me uh, at, at moments where I where I needed it through the writing of the book, for sure.
1: So the book is called Damage. Uh, it is a uh, it is a wonderful uh, effort by uh, Tris to tell the story of of uh, what boxers have faced in terms of uh, damage that they've suffered, and also. Uh, how they've gotten through it, and how their family has, and and also talks about what can be done, what has been done, and and some of the issues uh, that uh, the have happened to boxers. But I want to read uh, a, a, the last paragraph of the book, and and have Tris respond to it because I think it he did a great job of summing up. Uh, this whole issue and he writes it's time to be open about it and time to talk about it it's time boxing confronts its own worst problem stops ignoring it and steps up to address it at all levels this is a sport of courage and it will take bravery but it's happened in football soccer and rugby although it should not be up to other sports to take on boxing's biggest fight um, I thought that last paragraph for the, of, 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 was uh, very uh, well put and uh, I think explains to us that this is a problem we need to talk about and deal with. It can't just be um, pushed under the rug.
2: Yeah. And I mean, you know, it goes back to the the sort of closeness I felt with fighters and the respect I have. them. I remember going to the International Boxing Hall of Fame. And I just say that, for instance, back in 2000 or 2001 for the very first time. And I saw heroes of mine and it wasn't the way that I remembered them from when I used to watch them on TV. And it was very sad and sobering and as a fan at the time you kind of put that to the back of your mind you think oh i remember you know you're so you're so enamored and so in awe of these guys that you think these are still the same people that that, that you that you that you're meeting but they're not they've changed over the years and boxing has by and large done that to them and i think it's really important that we have sympathy for these guys but we understand what's happening to them and that they understand what's happening to them too because there's people right. I interviewed for the book but have CTE and they don't they haven't realized what what's going on with them and there are fighters now that are thinking you know that are not, not not too much older than me and I'm in my early 40s and they're thinking and, and they say they're in broadcast work they're thinking oh is my speech going now or is my memory going and, and am I going to lose my job over it so there are people out there that are thinking about it, but it needs to be something where it is part of the conversation. And that's what the book is about, really. Hey, it was uncomfortable to write to try and make it more comfortable for other people to talk about. So it is part of the conversation. It's peeling a scab of boxing so that it can heal. And obviously there are things in the, in the book where we talk about the amount of sparring, where we talk about, Uh, more strict licensing on fighters so they can't slip through loopholes like Muhammad Ali who wound up having that horrible fight in the Bahamas um, just for instance and and obviously there's there's the possibility or or the plausibility of whether we can have an an international body where at least medical data stays uh, shared uh, amongst different regulatory bodies so that if you fail a brain scan somewhere you can't go and get licensed somewhere else because it's not in yours or the sport's best interest. And I think, you know, some of this stuff is, is really important. and it is, It's slightly embarrassing that boxing still hasn't got its head around it now in 2021, but this is, you know, now's the time. Other sports are reacting to what's going on. Uh, the NFL has changed its return to play policies. It's changed its uh, preseason season procedures. Uh, soccer's now looking at banning, heading the footballs for uh, children under 14 worldwide rugby league are taking different uh, protocols in terms of substitutions in soccer there was a concussion sub- substitution made just last night in a premier league football game and that means that doesn't count as one of your actual substitutions because it's a head injury all these sports are reacting yet this goes back to harrison Martin in 1928 when he did punch punch drunk syndrome and it's boxing's problem so what's boxing doing about it mm.
1: Yeah. Well, the book is not just a litany of uh, stories. Uh, it's it, it deals, as you point out, with the me- the measures that have been taken, the ones that should be taken, and the ones that need to be studied and figured out. So uh, it gives a broad picture of uh, of this whole issue. Um, it is a, a, a terrific uh, work by you. Congrats on writing it. It was not an easy project, I'm sure. And uh, thanks for coming on and sharing it. I hope a lot of people will uh, get this book to help them understand what's going on in the sport.
2: Thank you very much for having me oh, it's, a, it's an absolute privilege, and I've really enjoyed it.
1: So I hope you uh, were enlightened by and uh, found interesting that conversation with Triss Dixon. The book is called Damage. Hamilcar uh, Publications putting it out. It's a really an amazing book, and I. I strongly recommend it to anybody who is a boxing fan that wants to read about uh, that topic. It's it's really well done. Uh, on our next show, we're going to be having a uh, an interesting uh, conversation because we're gonna be talking with uh, Barry Tompkins and Tim Ryan, two of the greatest broadcasters that have ever done boxing, uh, and two good friends of mine. Uh, and the reason we're gonna have them on together is to talk about the Four Kings, uh, Duran, Hagler, uh, Hearns, uh, and Leonard. And the reason we're talking about them is on June 6th, a uh, a documentary series, a four-part documentary series called The Kings will debut on Showtime that will be, I think, the most uh, comprehensive look at that era and the Four Kings that we have yet seen. Uh, and, and I'm looking forward to a trip. It's, it's a topic that I think still has, uh, has not been exhausted in terms of information.
0: Well, and you've talked about it as a matter of fact, as recent as last week, that the eighties might be one of the top decades in the history of boxing and having a little perspective on it. Do you think it still holds up that way? Yeah, I think it is. You know, Gil Clancy who
1: lived through many previous decades told me he thought it was the best. Uh, and, uh, and, and I certainly none after it has been better. Uh, and so I think, I think it was, and the four Kings were a big part of it. Well, speaking of boxing history, uh, our good friend, Tommy Ankello, who has his world-class boxing channel on YouTube, uh, delves into the historical part of boxing a little bit with also um, informational uh, and instructional videos that are geared to amateur boxers and anyone that wants to know about the sport, go over and check out his YouTube channel uh, and uh, enjoy that. So my thanks to Tris Dixon for uh, guesting with us and thanks to Trip for his fine job of co-hosting and uh, uh, the Let's Do Something production folks who make this possible. We'll see you next time.